I want to say why these are making their way to the back. If you haven't been with us the past few months, we're working through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. And what we've made our way to this morning is Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 31. So I'd ask you to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, and we'll begin our time together by reading this text. We're going to read Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through 37. The most important thing that you hear today are the words that I'm about to read to you. This is the living God, and He's about to speak with us. So I would ask, I plead with you, prepare your heart to hear from God. This is Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through 37. It says, Then He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to Him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged Him to lay His hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to You now, God, our Father, our Creator, our Redeemer. And we just cry out to You today, Lord, that You are all that we need. You're all that we need, Lord. And we pray, God, that You would reveal Yourself to us, Lord Jesus, that we would taste and see, Lord. Feed us with the bread of heaven in the next few moments. Lord, we pray, we just pray the words of that song that You would show us Christ from Your Word. God, we confess that there are, there are things among us that need to be broken, Lord. Habitual sins. And we pray, God, that You would do it. Lord, there are downcasts that need to be encouraged. Lord, we pray that You would do it. God, there are lost people that need to be saved. There are sinners that need to be convicted. There are arrogant among us, Lord, that need to be humbled. And we pray, God, that You would do it. And we wrap all that up, Lord, in this prayer that You would show us Your Son. If we get You, Lord, we get everything that we need. We get everything that we need. Show show us, Lord, that Your Word is full of holy power. Come reveal Yourself to us, Lord Jesus. Help us to stagger back as we behold Your glory, Your beauty, Your splendor. Exalt Yourself today, Lord, in Your church, among Your people. God, we pray that You alone be glorified. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have a lot to cover this morning. And we're about to jump straight into verse 31. And I'm just going to give you on the front end. Please hang with me through verse 31. Okay? We got some things that we need to lay down. Okay? And it might feel like digging a ditch through concrete. Now, that's a construction analogy because that's my background. Digging ditches in concrete, it doesn't go so easy. You got to slam it a few times. Okay? So it takes some time. 
All right, it may feel like that, but we're about to get to a story that unpacks this glorious truth, these glorious truths about Jesus. Okay, so hang with me through verse 31. We're going to set this in a context. Verse 31 says this, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Okay, so I want to give you some context geographically and some context historically. Okay, Jesus is now leaving the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you're here last week, you heard Ryan touch on this a little bit. Okay, and I won't spend a lot of time on it. But I do, I do want you to know some things about this region. This region is directly across the northwest border of Israel, Tyre and Sidon. You cross the border and you're there. Okay, during the time of Christ, this area was known as Phoenicia, and the people in this area are known as the Syrophoenicians. So if you glance back up at, up at uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 24, your heading in your Bible ought to say something like, the Syrophoenician woman. This is the area that Jesus has been in. This is the area that he's about to leave. Now, this was a wicked area. Okay, Tyre and Sidon, this was a wicked area. This city, the city of Tyre, invented the false god of Baal. Invented it. Okay, This is a wicked city. This was a prosperous city. In Isaiah 23, Tyre is called the merchant of all the earth. Prosperous, wicked area. Okay, In fact, through a Phoenician woman named Jezebel, Baal worship was imported into the nation of Israel. Okay, This was a wicked region with a wicked history. Listen to one more thing. In Ezekiel 28, this region was so wicked that the king of Tyre was compared with Satan himself in Ezekiel 28. So this is some background about this area that the Savior has been in. and He's been preaching. He's been doing ministry in Tyre and Sidon. And in 333 B.C., this region of Tyre and Sidon was conquered by the Greek ruler named Alexander the Great. Okay, And for this reason, by the time that Jesus makes it to this area, this area is predominantly Greek, predominantly Gentile. Let that stick out. Okay? And it's engulfed in pagan worship. They imported false gods all over the world. So we see Jesus, he withdraws from the borders of Israel, he crosses the borders, goes into this place because of persecution. And what happens next? Jesus crosses the border and he takes his message straight in to Tyre and Sidon. You see that? And in case you have any wrong ideas that Jesus was fleeing from persecution from Herod or from the religious leaders in Jerusalem because he was scared, wrong answer. Because what does he do? Does he go hide in the mountains? No. He walks in the middle of two Greek megacities that are, that are pagan-worshipping megacities. And he starts announcing himself as humanity's true king. Okay? Jesus isn't scared of conflict. He pierces the darkness with His light. He walks into the darkest of places and heralds His gospel. He's not afraid to take His message into dark places. This is Tyre and Sidon. Jesus just came out of Tyre and Sidon and He goes into a second region. And you see that in verse 31. And this region is called the Decapolis. Jesus comes back through. Now He's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Hang with me for just a second more. He's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The word Decapolis simply means ten cities. Deca, ten polis cities. Ten cities, the Decapolis. Okay? Now, from 200 B.C., Greeks inhabited these ten cities, but they were under Jewish rule until 63 B.C. 
a ruler named Pompey liberated these ten cities from the Jews, made them their own municipality, and renamed these ten cities the Decapolis. They're like their own region. Okay? And Jesus rolls into the Decapolis, and during this time, remember, Greeks have been here for 300 years by this time, this area also is predominantly Greek, predominantly Gentile. And you ought to see a theme in this section of Mark. Jesus is extending His ministry beyond the borders of Israel into Gentile regions. Now, why is the Jewish Messiah taking His message across the borders of Israel? Why is He doing that? Good question, right? Good question. Why is He doing that? Because we, we, get, we get something revealed to us about Jesus in this passage, in this section, really, of Mark, that Jesus desires to be more than the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the God of all nations. He's the Savior of the entire world. And now He begins to spread His message even beyond Israel. So here we are in Decapolis. If you've been paying attention in Mark, you know that this is not the first time that Jesus has been here. You remember that? Back in Mark chapter 5, Jesus walks into this region, and as soon as He steps off the shore, He's met with this man that has a legion of demons, thousands of demons in him. Okay, this happens in the Decapolis, and many of you know that story. Many of you remember that story. Jesus cast out a legion with the word of His mouth. He cast out thousands of demons out of this man and Decapolis. And do you remember what Mark chapter 5, verse 20 tells us? That that man who was delivered, he asked to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, you go tell everybody what great things that I've done for you. And this delivered man had been walking around this region of Decapolis, according to Mark chapter 5, verse 20, and he had been proclaiming the greatness of Jesus Christ. He had been proclaiming the supremacy of Jesus in the Decapolis region. And that verse says that they all marveled at the God of Israel. So Jesus had, he had a herald in this region. This man had been proclaiming Jesus in this region. We don't know how long, for many months. And Jesus comes back into this Decapolis region to do ministry. Now, let's give you one more bit of context. Matthew chapter 15 records Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis. But it does it very differently. If you were to read that in Matthew 15 verse 29... Matthew, when he records Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis, he records massive crowds being preached to, massive amount of peoples being healed. Okay? And he hits it from an overview. But Mark does something very different. Okay? Matthew record, records Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis to the masses, but Mark tunnels in. Okay? He tunnels in to Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis to this one man. To this one man, I want to ask you, why in the world does this happen? Matthew 15 tells us that Jesus rocks the Decapolis with His power. Many were healed, many were delivered, many were saved, many heard the gospel. And then Mark tells us about only one person. Why does that happen? Why did the Holy Spirit do that? Okay? And let's just think through this for a second, because this is going to set this story up in a context. There are other miracles besides the one that we just read that better demonstrate the power of Jesus. And so maybe your answer, well, maybe Mark did it like that to demonstrate the power of Jesus. And I would say yes to that. I would say yes and amen to that. And he also did it to demonstrate the compassion of Jesus. Yes and amen to both of those. But there are better miracles that demonstrate the power of Jesus, like raising the dead, like casting thousands of demons out of a man. There are better demonstrations of the power of Jesus. Okay? And that ought to drive you 
to the root of this text. Okay? This story has to be rightly understood. It has more to do than Jesus healing this man physically. We have to get to the spiritual aspects of this story. And this is why Mark includes this story to his Gentile audience. Because of what it points to. There's something under, underneath the surface. So, before we dive into the rest of these verses, I want you to think about this story as a living parable. A sign. When I say parable, I don't mean a story that Jesus made up. Okay, this really happened, but it, it points to something bigger than what happened between Jesus and this man. Do you understand that? It was a sign. It meant something broader, something bigger. Okay? This is a living parable. This man's handicap is a picture of the human race, which is deaf to the voice of God. Okay? This man stands as a representative of humanity in this story. In Adam, all sinners have become deaf to God's voice. And this man is a picture of hopeless, the hopeless human race apart from Christ. So as we unpack this together, don't miss the main point of the passage. The point of the passage points beyond this man and straight to us, straight to you. Okay, This is a demonstration. Jesus is showing something of himself to humanity. He's using this man as a representative. So here's what happened. Are we all together? Are we all good? Living parable, sign, bigger than what happened between Jesus and this man. And here's what went down. Verse 32 says this. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on the man. So I want you to try to picture this scene. There was a man in in the Decapolis. We don't even know this man's name because this man is not the point of the story. We don't even know his name. Okay? The, the hero, the main character of this story is Jesus Christ. But you have this man, and here's what we know about him. He can't hear. He's deaf. He can't hear words. He can't hear sounds. He has no auditory senses. And he had a speech impediment. And many of you know this. This happens if a baby is born deaf. Many of you know that that baby will also not be able to speak. Okay? If you can't hear yourself talk, you are not able, over time, you're not able to intelligently communicate with other people because you can't hear what you're saying. You can't hear how you're articulating things. And so, this man is deaf, most likely from birth. And he can make sounds with his mouth, but he can't make words. He can't communicate with other people. He has a speech impediment. And this is what we know about this man. This was before modern day sign language or modern day typing. No Twitter, no keyboards, no texting. This man couldn't communicate with people. You see that? This was this man's condition. And we know one more thing about this man. Okay, we don't know his name. We know that he had a condition. And we know one more thing about him. That this man had a few friends. According to verse 32. He had a few people that loved him enough to bring him to Jesus Christ. In this parable, this man's friends stand as a living picture of the church of Jesus Christ. The church's job is to bring helpless humanity into the presence of the Savior, straight to the feet of Christ. And that's exactly what they did. So these unnamed friends brought this man to Christ, and I want you to see what happens next. What do they do when they get there in verse 32? Verse 32 says that they begged Jesus to lay His hands on this man. That is a very strong word, right? 
Now, there, there, are, there are many of us who will ask for things, but there are very few of us who will beg for things. And these friends brought this man into the presence of Jesus, and they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. Strong word, begged, pleaded with Christ. So I want to back off already. We're not even two verses into this passage, and this is an incredible reminder to us that our job as the church of Jesus is to bring men to Christ. Notice in verse 32 that they, plural, not just one of them that voiced a prayer for the group, they begged, present tense, multiple people calling out to Christ, Jesus, please heal him. Jesus, put your hands on this man. Jesus, we believe that you can make this man well. Jesus, stretch out your hands. Please, Lord, please heal him. Begging Christ. Over and over and over again. And not just one person, a group of people wrestling with Christ in prayer. Wrestling with Christ in prayer. And I ask you this, before we even move any farther, are you, even, are you like these friends? Are you like them? When is the last time that you begged Jesus Christ to stretch out His hand and heal a sinner? To save a sinner. When's the last time that happened? And I don't mean just in a general sense. I mean by name. Lord Jesus, put your hands on Him and save Him. Call Him out of darkness and heal Him. When's the last time that happened in your life? And then back up just a second and say, this happened with a group of people. This is a group of people calling on the Savior to stretch out His hands and say, when's the last time that happened? And the brothers and sisters that you walk with, this is, a, this is an example for us, a push to us. One more point in this story. We don't know the friend's name either. We don't know the friends that called out to Jesus because they're not the point of the passage. And let that be a word of correction to you. If you're a Christian looking to make a name for yourself, let this be a word of correction to you that these men are nameless. And our anthem ought to be that we are forgotten and Jesus Christ is exalted. That ought to be our anthem, our heart. To humble ourselves, bring men to Christ, and plead with Jesus to save sinners. So before we move on, we must take our place as these nameless friends in this parable and plead with Christ to save sinners by name. We must do this. This is our job in this parable. This is the picture of the church of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. How do you think that Jesus responds to diligent, persevering prayer of these friends? How do you think He responds? Let's read verses 33 and 34. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephata, that is, be opened. So the first thing that Jesus does, he grants their request. They call, they call, they call over and over again, and he answers their prayer. He grants them their request. I hope that's an encouragement to you. This is a revelation of the character of Jesus. And then the first thing that Jesus does is He isolates this man. This man who is largely relationally cut off from the world, He gets one-on-one time with the Creator of the universe. He took Him somewhere privately and began to deal with this man. Jesus gives this man personal attention because, listen to this, Jesus Christ is full of compassion towards this man. 
He's full of compassion towards sinners. He's full of compassion towards those suffering under the effects of sin. This deaf, mute man had learned to be passive in life, but Jesus was about to draw him in. Jesus was about to reveal Himself to this man. And you're about to see Jesus. He's about to enter into this man's world. I'm going I'm to show you what that means. This is a private meeting, okay? This is a private meeting between Jesus and this man. And let's, one more reminder before we move past this. You are not a number with Christ. You're not a face in the crowd. Jesus Christ loves you. Jesus Christ is filled with compassion toward you. And Jesus Christ is available for one-on-one time with sinners like you and like me. This is who He is. So Jesus is about to enter into this man's world. This, think about it. You think you're this man. He can't hear. He can't, Jesus can't go up to him and say, here's what I'm about to do for you. I, I'm about to do something for you and here's who I am. He can't hear. So Jesus is about to enter into this man's world and speak a form of sign language to this man. Okay, He's going to use visual aids. He's going to use physical touch. He's going to enter into this man's mental world. He's going to relate to this man on this man's level. And Jesus is about to show this man what He's about to do to this man. And what does Jesus do? The fingers placed in the ears meant that Jesus was going to restore this man's hearing. The touch to the tongue meant that the Savior was about to unleash this man's tongue. And then the gaze toward the heavens meant that Jesus was communicating to this man, only God can do this. Only God can do this. So please remember that Jesus does not need to heal this man the way that He does. He doesn't need spit to heal this man. He doesn't need to touch this man in order to heal this man. He doesn't even need to say anything in order to heal this man. If you're here last week, you know that Jesus, He thought a demon out of a little girl. He could think this man well and He would be healed. He doesn't need to do any of this. Okay? So Jesus is not practicing magic. Okay? He's not doing anything weird in this text. He's entering into this man's cognitive world, this world of silence, and He's given him language that this man can understand. That's the touch of the ears, the touch of the tongue, and the gaze to heaven. Now remember that this happens in majority Gentile area. Not exclusively, but majority. And this man that Jesus is about to heal is most likely a Gentile. Why is that important? Because it's very rare in this culture that a Jewish man would lay his hands on a Gentile. Much less stick his fingers in this man's ears and then touch his tongue. And so the religious leaders in this culture, the religious leaders in this day, would have withdrawn from this man, but Jesus in holy compassion draws near to this man. Lays His hands on this man. That The other religious leaders wouldn't even get around this man, but Jesus draws near and lays His hands on this man. This is the compassion of the Savior. And then the next thing that Jesus does after looking up is it says that He lets out a sigh. Jesus lets out a sigh. Now, that just doesn't cut it of what's going on in this in that word. Okay? It doesn't cut it in English. We don't hear it right. This is a strong expression of emotional pain with a touch of anger. Maybe be better if it said he moaned. He groaned. Okay? And the point is, is, is that this moved him. 
Something in this moment moved him. It was painful. It was grieving. Now, you would think that Jesus, surely Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's about to heal him. Jesus knows that. Okay? So you would think that the Savior would be smiling, happy, and rejoicing because he knows what's about to happen in a matter of seconds. Right? So why the grief? Why the anger? Why the sigh? Think about this. This sigh is pregnant with meaning. This, this has theological significance. That means that this sigh is about to tell you something about God, about what He's like, about the nature of God, His heart. So what does this sigh tell us? This is an expression of pain and anger that Jesus felt toward the effects of the sins on humanity. This is a revelation of the heart of God towards His broken creation. It makes the Savior sigh. It hurts His heart when he, when he beholds what sin has done to this man. It hurts His heart. He sighs. But, I want you to remember what we've already talked about. But, if all we see in this miracle is a revelation of the Lord's power over the physical realm, we miss half the story. There is something more. And we must dig. We've got to dig below the surface. We have to go deeper. We have to go further. And see this as a parable of a demonstration of the power of Jesus in the spiritual realm. The point of this passage is that Jesus heals the spiritually deaf and the spiritually mute. Christ can give the chief of sinners an ear to hear. And He can teach the hardest sinners to call upon the name of God. So this man stands as a picture in this parable of the personal inability of you, of you to save yourself. You're no different than this man. This man can't make himself hear. He can't make himself speak. He's, he has an inability. And then Jesus in this parable stands as the sovereign Savior. The one who awakens. The one who flashes power. The one who brings the new creation. This is Jesus in this parable, Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You cannot and you could not open your own ears. You could try until you're 95 years old and you can't make yourself undeaf. You need the Savior. You have an inability. And He's the sovereign one. So in a very real sense, this story happens to every single Christian in this room. Your ears were unlocked. Your tongue was unchained. Just like this man at one point in your life, you were deaf to all communication from God. Just like this man was deaf from all communication towards this world. Please don't ignore this about yourself. You were not born into this world a Christian. You were not born into this world a good person. You were born into this world a sinner, separated from God with deaf ears. And you needed the Sovereign One to open them up. And this is a picture for us. Every single Christian. In the new birth, God sets us free through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. He breaks our chains that bind our tongue. And then what's the only proper response? Praise to the living God. He unbound our tongue and we give praise to the living God. So the question for you is, do you see yourself when you see this man? Do you see yourself in this story. 
Can you identify with this man's deafness, with this man's muteness? Do you see yourself here? Or do you have a high view of yourself, an unbiblical view of yourself? I want to be honest with you. In front of every single one of you, I see myself in this story. And I praise King Jesus, 20 years old. 20 years old. I wish that I could tell every single one of you that when I was converted, when when Christ saved me, I wish that I could tell every single one of you that I was seeking Him with all of my heart, that I was pursuing Him. But the truth is, is that I was wicked and I know my sin. And many of you know truths theologically. You know it doesn't surprise you, but I know my sin. I know my wickedness. Hundred miles an hour towards the thing that God hates. And what does the Savior do? He pursues me into the darkness and He reveals Himself to me. He flashes His power. I was like the deaf man. Didn't hear the voice of God. And Jesus comes and He saves. This is the new birth. This is conversion. And all I know to say is praise to His holy name. This is who He is. This is what He does. And you know what else I know about Jesus is that the same thing happened to every Christian in this room. Different stories, different scenarios, different setups. But Jesus Christ pursued you into your sin. And He opened your eyes. He unlocked your ears to the voice of God. And He saved you. Hallelujah to His name. Praise His holy name. My favorite way that the Scriptures teach this is in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And I'll read it to you. This is what God has done for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God just compared the way that we got saved to the Genesis account. When God said, let there be light and there was light. God said that's how you became a Christian. That God said, let light shine out of darkness and you saw. That's the sovereignty of God in salvation. He doesn't speak, you don't see. You're completely dependent on the Savior. It's like a bomb, a boom. The power of God opens the eyes, opens the ears. This is the power of Jesus. He displays His sovereignty. He's the one who says, let light shine out of darkness. So my question for you is, do you see yourself when you see this man? Can you see yourself in this story? Try to interact with this passage. Try to put yourself in this man's place. Have you heard the voice of the Son of God? Have you heard the voice of Jesus Christ revealing Himself to you? I want you to try to imagine that you're this man. That all of a sudden you hear. You had no auditory senses and now you're hearing sounds. Most likely you're hearing the Savior, the Creator of the universe speaking with you. You're hearing sounds and you're giving speech. You're giving praise to this King that just delivered you. Overwhelming joy. Overwhelming joy. And then out of nowhere, and then out of nowhere, I want you to imagine these words in that moment. I want you to imagine hearing these words. Verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one. 
Can you imagine how caught off guard you would have been if you had just been this man and received this power and this healing and Jesus looks at you and says, tell no one. And you're looking at Christ and you're saying, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying because I just heard you say that. And I didn't hear anything else before in my life, but I just heard you talk to me. And I don't understand what you're saying that now I can't tell people what happened. Don't tell anybody. Can you imagine the confusion in this man? But we know that over and over and over in this gospel that Jesus desires to be known for His message, not for His miracles. Over and over and over again, this is the story. Jesus Christ desires to be known for His message, not for His miracles. And for this reason, He silences this man. Verse 36 continues, But the more He charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Listen to John MacArthur here. He says, We cannot condone their disobedience, but we certainly understand their response. The man who was once unable to speak is now unable to stay silent. Verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So you're there. Imagine you're in the response of this crowd. Jesus rocks the Decapolis with His power. And these crowds are astonished beyond measure. Now sometimes we can just read over words. Think about what that means to be astonished beyond measure. And this is the great, the gravity, the weightiness of Jesus Christ on the soul of man. Astonished beyond measure. Infinite glory was revealed to this crowd. And then they give this beautiful description of Jesus. That He has done all things well. And at that moment, we turn our attention away from this healed man and we gaze at the Savior Himself, the hero of this story. He has done all things well. And when they declared that about Christ, this, this has echoes of the Genesis account. When God makes everything in all of His creation, He saw that it was good. You remember that? This is the echo that what, what the point is, is that what Jesus has done, only God could do. He's the Creator among His creation. He's the Creator in the flesh. He recreated this man's hearing and this man's speech. Created power flashes forth from Jesus. He does all things well. Jesus Christ never did anything poorly in His entire life. Everything that Jesus ever did he did it well. All things that Jesus did, He did it well. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this means that He still does all things well. Everything that Jesus does, He does it well. He makes no mistakes. He doesn't fail in anything. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He's going to serve us here with this quote. He's going to serve us with this quote about this passage. He says, Jesus does all things well. We would receive unspeakable comfort if we daily remembered this about Christ. 
Let us remember it as we look back over the days of our lives, even from our conversion. God brought us out of darkness into light and stripped us of our idols. Remember His wisdom in choosing all our portions and placing us where we are and giving us what we have. In all these things, He has done all things well. It is an act of great mercy from God that we do not get to have everything our way. As we look into the future, we do not know what may be, but we know that we are in the hands of Him who does all things well. He will not make an error in dealing with us. The great shepherd of the sheep will make no mistakes. When we all get to glory, we'll look back over our lives and know the meaning of this statement in its fullness. He does all things well. God makes no mistakes. And then he says, perhaps we shall wonder in amazement of how we could have ever doubted the love of God. And I say amen to that. That this statement about Christ, every single thing He does in your life is perfect. No mistakes. He does all things well. This is the Savior. So Mark has exalted Jesus in this way. It's working towards a climax in this text that everything that Jesus does, He does it well. And before we finish up this passage, I want, to see, I want you to see something in this text. Mark has sprinkled like a breadcrumb trail in this text. And I want you to see it. It's a powerful revelation of Jesus. Okay, It's like a breadcrumb that Mark gives as a hint. And it reveals Jesus even further. In verse 32, Mark uses an extremely rare Greek word to describe this man's speech condition. And it's extremely rare. In fact, later in the passage, in verse 37, he uses a different Greek word, the common Greek word, to describe this man's condition. Okay? You say, well, I was looking for a little more than that. You know? I understand. But the thing that's interesting is that this Greek word is only used one other time in the Bible. And it's Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. And it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Okay? Same Greek word, only other time in all of Scripture. This is like a breadcrumb for Mark. And he intends to draw a link back to this passage in Isaiah 35 from Mark chapter 7. So I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 34. And I'll read to you a few verses. This is rich with significance. Isaiah 34 and 35. Okay, the context around Isaiah 34 and 35. Isaiah 34, the context is judgment, wrath. In fact, if you have a Bible like mine, the subheading over this uh, Isaiah 34 is judgment on the nations. That's not good. Context is wrath. Listen to this. Isaiah 34, verse 2. The Lord is enraged against all the nations. It's not good. Verse 8, we read of a coming day of vengeance. And so God, in this chapter, the whole chapter, you go read it later, He's promising to pour out His judgment on the nations, plural. And then something really interesting happens. In Isaiah 35, the Holy Spirit turns the corner and begins to show forth these glorious promises. These glorious promises in the midst of judgment. 
is like a burst of hope. It's a change of direction. In the midst of judgment, God promises mercy. Listen to R.C. Sproul. When God gives an announcement of judgment for His people, He almost always gives a word of future hope. And this word of hope comes in chapter 35 of Isaiah. So I want you to think about this. You've seen this before. Three chapters in the Bible, God is cursing humanity. Cursing humanity for what they've done. And then Genesis 3.15, God shows forth the promise. He flashes the promise that there's coming an offspring of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. There's a promise in the midst of judgment. Mercy is shown from God in the midst of judgment. This is the same thing that's happening in Isaiah 34 and 35. Here's what I mean. Listen to Isaiah 35, verse 2. So, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, and then listen. Isaiah 35, verse 2 says, The glory and the majesty of God will be seen. Will be seen. Verse 4. God is coming with a vengeance. And then the verse finishes, God is coming to save. That's a prophecy from the Scriptures. Not just anybody is coming to save. God Himself is coming to save His people. In the midst of judgment, He gives a revelation of mercy. He's coming to save. This is a promise about the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior that's going to come and bring salvation. God Himself is coming to earth to save His people. This is the message of Isaiah 35. And then listen. Listen to what Isaiah says happens in the very next verse. After God comes to save His people, in verse 4, Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That Greek word for mute in verse 6 is our link back to Mark chapter 7. Mark is drawing us into this passage. And what's He revealing to us? He's revealing to us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's God that's come to save. He's the one that's going to bring Isaiah 35 blessings to His people. He's the, he's the, he's the answer to the prophecy. This is Mark's message toward us. He's revealing Jesus Christ to His audience. He's God in the flesh who's come to save sinners. This is Jesus. But how does He bring this salvation? I'm going to read a few more verses in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, 8 references a highway of holiness. Think about that. This is a reminder for us that there is one way into these Isaiah 35 blessings. It's not highways of holiness. It's a highway of holiness that God's going to set up. Isaiah 35, verse 9 and 10. How does Jesus bring this salvation? Isaiah 35, 9 and 10 mentions a group of people who are called the redeemed and the ransomed of the Lord. That's a reminder for us. What do those words mean? It means that somebody laid down a price to purchase a people. Redemption, ransom. This is a reminder for us of the price that our Savior laid down to purchase these blessings, to purchase salvation. 
Salvation is completely free to us. These blessings that Christ has given us are completely free, but they cost the Savior everything. He laid down His life for the salvation of sinners. This calls us into the remembrance of the bloody cross of Jesus. He paid the price. He paid the ransom price for us. And then listen to Isaiah 35 verse 10. Listen to this. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. What if I told you that every Christian in this room, that, that I know your future, I know 100% your future, everlasting joy awaits you. How glorious is that promise? Everlasting joy, joy that never ceases. Everlasting joy awaits us in Jesus Christ. This is a glorious promise. And then listen to how this verse ends, Isaiah 35.10. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Ultimately, for every single Christian, sorrow is gone because the Savior bore it. Ultimately, for every single Christian, no more sign. Why? Because the Savior took your place. There's no more wrath from God. No more condemnation from God. Because the Savior has taken our place. He's become our substitute on His bloody cross and He's become our King in His triumphant resurrection. The bloody cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. I want to finish up as we celebrate the sovereign work of Jesus in salvation. I want to finish up and I want to talk to anyone in this room. I want to speak directly to you for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to do any games or anything weird. But if you do not know Christ, if you are not saved, I want to talk directly to you for just a moment. These blessings that we just read about in Isaiah 35, this, this deliverance that Jesus demonstrated for this man, they are not automatic. It would be tremendously wrong for you to think, praise God, Jesus came and everybody saved. That is unbiblical. The blessings of Christ are not automatic. They're only for the ones who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Nobody is born by default, a default inheritor of these blessings. You have to be born again. You have to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. If you are outside of Christ, you are not safe. God has promised to crush you outside of Christ. Ezekiel 18 verse 4, the soul who sins shall die. That needs to disturb you. You have no safety Outside of Jesus. The only safe place for you is to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. He alone can open deaf ears. Listen to this promise in Isaiah 25.18 as we close. Isaiah 25.18 says, In that day the deaf ear shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. That's a promise from God. The deaf shall hear the words of the book. And the eyes of the blind shall see. And my prayer is that God would stand by His promise today. And that deaf ears would hear the words of the book. 
and blind eyes would see. And I just want to read a prayer this morning that the Lord had me pray over this time. I want to read it to you. Just a prayer for God to save sinners. And I want to read it over us as we close. This is directly to you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, I want you to hear hear me. Hear me plead with you. May the holy God of heaven pursue you and overtake your heart. Even in this moment before you leave this room, may you see your sin as filthy and wicked. May you be terrified of the coming judgment. May you hear the words of this book and be saved. May the Holy God of Heaven unplug your ears and uncover your blind eyes. May you see your desperate need for Jesus Christ. May you see the glory and the love of Jesus. May you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit scream in your ear to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ, God's only Son. May you be saved forever from the terrible wrath of the Holy Judge. And may you enjoy the saving knowledge of the living God for the rest of your days on earth. Look at me for just a minute. The only safe place for you in eternity is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ. And I want to make this very simple. The Holy Spirit has demanded that every person on the planet repent of their sins and put their trust in this slaughtered and risen King Jesus. And every person who puts their trust in this King Jesus is saved forever. It's the only safe place for you in eternity. If God's doing a work in your heart, I want to plead with you, please do not ignore this. Ryan and myself and several other people would love to talk more with you about this. And my plea, please do not let Satan dull your heart towards your soul. You need to deal urgently with your soul. So I plead with you that you would come find us if you need to talk. We're more than happy to talk with you. Let's pray together as we close. Father, we pray that you would take your words that you've given us, your scriptures, and that you would drive them in our souls. God, we pray that you would help us to feel the weight of your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal Jesus more and more to us. And we pray, God, that you would help us to feel right things about Christ. Help us to be full of zeal and full of love and full of trust and full of praise towards You, Lord Jesus. Help us to think right thoughts thoughts about You, Lord Jesus. And we pray, God, that You would drive away every lie in our minds that's not true about You, Lord. We pray that we would know You in spirit and in truth, Lord Jesus. And we pray, God, that You would exalt Yourself in our hearts, that You would exalt Yourself in this church. And God, we call out to You, Lord. We ask You, God, that You would save sinners in our midst, that You would call them out of darkness into light, that You would unplug deaf ears among us, Lord. Flash forth Your holy power to save. Come stand by Your Word. Come reveal Your glory, Lord. You said that Your Gospel was powerful. 
You said that your church, about your church that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Lord, demonstrate your word in our midst. God, we cry out for this church. We cry out, God, that you would make this true among us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.